0: Chefs without restaurants, episode sixty six, with Bill Smith.
1: When I first got there, there were mostly students or recently graduated students. Who a lots of them who worked just a couple of shifts. It was like a, a staff of there were there were a couple of full time people, but most people just worked a shift or two or three. And the Latino people were the dishwashers, right? So um, as these these students would you know would eventually go away because they would graduate, and they could find jobs and go move somewhere else or whatever it turned out that these dishwasher guys had been watching the whole time. And, and, and then there was an instance where I was short one night and, and Jorge Martinez said, well, I can do that. I've been watching for years. I'm sure I can go do it. And so he did. And it was like, Oh my God. So, <laughs> so then as it happened, um, as the student guys would go away, this wasn't something intentional. It's just the way it worked out. It was, it was the easiest way to deal with, with a, a shortage is that as guys would go away, then the dishwasher guy would like raise their hand and say, I can do that. And and in fact they could. And, um, they were great. They just, once, once they knew, what you wanted them to do, then that
0: was, you never had to worry about it again. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Happy Monday, everyone. On the show this week, I have Chef Bill Smith. Bill was the chef at Crook's Corner in Chapel Hill, North Carolina for 25 years before retiring in January of 2019. I wanted to talk to Bill about his time at Crook's Corner and what he plans to do now that he's retired. Bill's always been something of an activist. Many of his employees at the restaurant were from Mexico and have become like family to Bill. He's been talking a lot about immigration and trying to find ways to support those former employees. In fact, Mexico has become one of his favorite places to travel, and he would have been there right now if it weren't for COVID. We also talk about food, from his Atlantic Beach pie to the famous shrimp and grits that Crooks Corner helped put on the map. Bill's authored two cookbooks, been nominated for a number of James Beard Awards, and won one, and helped start the Cat's Cradle music venue down there. One more thing before I go. I have recently launched the Chefs Without Restaurants newsletter— if you're interested, there's a link in the show notes, or you can go to chefswithoutrestaurants.org for the link. I'll be sending emails with links to shows, member news, cool things I like, gear recommendations, and more. And now, time for the show. So, thanks so much, and have a great week. Welcome, everyone. This is Chris Beer, and today on the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast, I have Chef Bill Smith. Bill was the chef at Crook's Corner in Chapel Hill, North Carolina for 25 years before retiring in 2019. He's the author of two cookbooks and was the owner of Cat's Cradle Music Venue. Welcome to the show, Bill. Hey there. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm cool. It's great. So you've had a long history in the food business. I mean, 25 years just at one restaurant. That's almost unheard of these days for someone to stay somewhere so long.
1: Well, it suited me. It, uh, <laughs> and, I, you know, once uh,
0: once I have sort of established myself, I got to have my own way. So <laughs> that helps. So, kind of, let's get into your backstory, I guess, off the bat a little bit. What's your background with food? I mean, did you come from a family that loved food and eating? Were you, uh, you know, did you have this history of, like, you're by your grandmother's side that so many chefs talk about? What was that like?
1: Uh, Some yes, some no. I I grew up in eastern North Carolina uh, at a time when... um there was usually a woman in the house all the time, the the housewife or the grandmother or something we, we, you don't see that so much any longer, uh, because women now work, well, they have to, unfortunately, but at the time there was something called a housewife. And so my grandmothers actually, uh, were in charge of, of two large households. Um, and they did the cooking and, um, it was always good. I mean, I just I didn't expect I always expected food to be good, and I didn't cook with them. my uh, Great grandmother on my mother's side was the best cook, but she uh, didn't want anybody bothering her. So occasionally, I would I would be able to you know hang out with her. And but anyway, that was it was I didn't realize at the time, but it was setting me up for my career because uh, since I grew up expecting food to always be good, then that was something I felt like I also needed to do when I began cooking. I backed into to being uh, in the restaurant business though, because I, uh, as you said, I had, I was part owner of, of, a, of a music club here in Chapel Hill and um, we never could make any money. We were such poor business people that, that we were, we all had to go find other jobs and I ended up in a restaurant. And so I, it, over the, over time, um, as I grew tired of, of, of running a club, uh, I, I was also realizing how the sort of the aesthetic of, of, of the restaurant kitchen suited me. So it was a, it was a bit of good luck, I think. But you didn't grow up with this burning desire to be a chef, like it didn't even cross my mind until I was one. Really, I mean, I just my first chef job. It was I was the uh, elevated because of attrition. It wasn't because I I was you know
0: (laughs) scrambling for the position. It was like (laughs) so. Was it that first job uh, when you had the cat's cradle that kind of got you into the industry? Was that your first foray into the food business?
1: Yeah, I'd waited tables like in college, but yeah, essentially yes. Mm -hmm. And where was that job? It was a, a little place downtown called uh, the Carolina Coffee Shop. I mean, it's a, you know, it was a, a college breakfast and, you know,
0: beer and coffee and bags, you know. <laughs> so then you ended up connecting with Bill Neal, who went on to open Crook's Corner. Is that right? You started working for him? When I started with him, he was at La Residence. I never worked with him at Crook's Corner. So you cooked at, at Crook's Corner for 25 years.
1: Yeah, but he had, he had been dead about five years before I went over there.
0: So what was the evolution of food like there when you started? Did you kind of just inherit all the menus that were there and just kept going with the menus that existed?
1: Sort of, yeah. I I, I had been at La Residence and it had gotten sold, it had been sold. And so um, I was sort of looking for a job and Gene, who was Bill's partner at Chris Corner, just called me and said, come down here and work. And um, it was so much busier than what my other job had been that I didn't have time to do much else except keep up. And I had to learn. Um, it was, so uh, how long had it been there by then? Uh, probably 10 years old by then, I guess. And um, uh, so there were, it had a, a, a regular clientele who had favorites and expectations and things like that that I was sort of obliged, you know, to, to keep. Uh, my background was good. Uh, and that was from Eastern North Carolina and it was a Southern restaurant. So I had a repertoire in in waiting, but I I, I moved it in very slowly. Like I said, at first it's just because I could not keep up. You know, it was like, it was so much harder than I, um, than my my other job had been just because of volume. So uh, as I sort of got my footing, I was, I was then uh, at Liberty to introduce things as it, you know, as it made sense, as I had time, as a lot of it was really seasonal and, you know, and so if the season and, and the time worked out in a good way then I could you know, introduce things. And then, you know, slowly over time, the things that I began to introduce became the majority and they, they became the favorites and the things that the clientele looked for. And, I, and there were, I but there were some things I never got, but I never changed a lot of things that I inherited and I was grateful for most of those recipes. So.
0: I've heard a lot about shrimp and grits. That's one of the things that you guys became known for. Bill did that. He's something he grew up with in South Carolina. It was just a breakfast. It was a fisherman's breakfast is the way he
1: described it. And he thought, why not put this on in you and see how it goes and you see how it went. And now it's inescapable. But that was something I didn't change. I would never dream of changing that. That would be silly. I was always grateful actually that I had, that was one thing I did not have to replace. But what I've done, I've had to replace all that, all those with something else every night. So that was cool.
0: I've read a lot about the iconic dishes that you've gone on to put on that menu that seem to be on there forever. What is the, is it Atlantic, uh, Atlantic beach pie? Yeah. That I call it a stupid pie at this point,
1: but um, <laughs> it's something I grew up with in Eastern North Carolina. It's a variation on it. There are many recipes for it. Um, it's essentially um, it's a lemon pie, but the, the, the thing that makes it distinct is that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the, uh, the crust is made with saltine crackers and that's just—it was something that uh, all the seafood restaurants along the coast had on their menus. It was—it was just a tradition there that wasn't well known elsewhere. Some people use saltine, some people use Ritz crackers, some people use Captain's wafers, some people use oyster crackers. And this starts little fights, of course. But uh, anyway, I use—I did saltine crackers really because the day I, I did a test when I did a test, that was what I had. I wasn't like—I wasn't like a. Oh, I better t- tasted all the crackers and said, "Do this." It was not that. So and it was fine. It was really good, and I left it alone. But it, it, actually, it causes dust up. But it was just something that I grew up with, and that I, rem- I hadn't thought about in a million years. Um, um, the Southern Foodways Alliance was coming to, to Eastern North Carolina. They were using New Bern, my hometown, as their base. They wanted me to do one Eastern North Carolina dinner one night that was not barbecue, and I was just thinking of things that I remembered fondly growing up, or that were typical of the of the region, and and that was the. Uh, I was say, oh, yeah, that pie. Remember how good that was? I wonder, you know, and I went to some church school books and, you know, poked around and found a couple of different recipes and came up with this version. And then it sort of took on a life of
0: its own. And now it's, you know, like I said,
1: it's, it's inescapable now. So,
0: <laughs> what was the makeup of the kitchen employees like when you started to where it is now? I know you've talked about having a lot of employees from Latin America, but was that the case when you started?
1: Uh, there were some. Um, mostly, I, I think it had been there were there were a lot of um when I first got there there were mostly students or recently graduated students who a uh, lots of them who worked just a couple of shifts It was like a you know a staff of there were, there were a couple of full- time people but most people just worked a shift or two or three and um the Latino people were the dishwashers right so um I had never known any, any people from Mexico before. I don't think, I don't recall ever. So I, I just, you know, I was trying to make friends with them too. And we got to be buddies and, and my Spanish is, well, I, I had studied Spanish a long time ago, but uh, I hadn't used it in years and years, but anyway, it's sort of fun, you know, the new language and, 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 you know, and all the the, the misunderstandings that that can cause are always really funny. And, and we just got to be buddies. And, and, um, as these, these students would, you know, would eventually go away because they would graduate and they could find jobs and go move somewhere else or whatever. Um, uh, and it turned out that these dishwasher guys had been watching the whole time. And, and, and what, there was an instance where I was short one night and, and, and um uh, Jorge Martinez said, well, I can do that. I've been watching for years. I'm sure I can go do it. And so he did. And it was like, Oh my God. So, <laughs> so then as it happened, um, as the student guys would go away, this wasn't something intentional. It's just the way it worked out. It was, it was the easiest way to deal with, with a, a shortage is that as guys would go away, then the dishwasher guy would like raise their hand, and say, I can do that. And, and in fact they could. And, um, They were great. They just once once they knew what you wanted them to do, then that was you never had to worry about it again. You didn't have to like sand over them and you know and swear and all this kind of stuff. And so, in no time at all, it was like it was as unintentional. Uh, Not all of my kitchen, but a good portion of it were were uh, guys from Mexico.
0: So, and the rest is history, sort of. Because now they're my very best friends ever. So, (laughs) did that impact the type of food you were doing or flavors or anything? I mean, because a lot of times it doesn't. There are a lot of you know, really well-known Michelin three-star French restaurants where the whole kitchen crew is from Mexico, but you wouldn't see any of that kind of influencing the menu, but you seem to let it, uh, impact the dishes a little bit.
1: Yeah, I didn't mind. I don't see why not. I mean, uh, for one thing there, they are, it's a Southern restaurant and they live in the South now. So there, and there's a lot of them in in North Carolina, half a million at one count. So, um, uh, and the food's good. There's nothing wrong with it. I I didn't like put on my first impulse, honestly, was to resist, a little bit of that just because I thought people were expecting it. And then, oh God, he's going to turn it into a Mexican restaurant. And and I didn't feel like that. I didn't want to do that, but there were some things that were really good. And, and I use a couple of examples when people ask me this, um, the Mexican hominy they use for pozole is very much better than the Southern hominy. So much better that it's just like, once you've tasted it, you'd forget it, you know? So that was one. I, I switched over to that, that, that style of hominy. And, uh, uh people have just, just I don't know it's just evolution but the public has developed uh, a taste for hotter and hotter and hotter and spicier and spicier foods and so that was when I first went to work at Crooks occasionally people would complain that the collards had too much red pepper flakes so that never happens now and and you need you know people need uh, several choices of hot sauces and uh, and they know all the brands that you can get in the Mexican store and all this kind of stuff so you know things like that and why, why would you not do that I mean you know this is um quick's corner was like a it was a southern restaurant but it was it was a i wanted it to my kitchen to represent the time and place in which we lived and that's that was what that was you know it was seasonal but it also i wanted it to be to be modern as well as old and comfortable so
0: what was your kitchen environment like it seemed like you really enjoyed cooking and having a good time and it wasn't this kind of yes chef no chef very strict formal environment um you know is there a reason or is that just your personality and how you wanted to run the kitchen that is me. Um, I mean, yeah, and it worked, you know, um, uh, I think probably I
1: didn't, at least in the beginning, I didn't feel comfortable being a boss. I don't like to be bossed around. I don't like to be told what to do. And I, I guess I don't like doing it to anybody else either. Um, because my people were reliable and competent, then it wasn't necessary for me to be like a just perpetually scolding everyone. I, mean, I had to instruct people. I had to show them what was what, and I had to correct errors, but the, uh, um, yeah, I'm very uh, laissez-faire. I don't i do not like all that crap. I don't see the point. I mean, and there's a lot of it. I've been saying for years that um, once you've had your tantrum, you still have to then go solve the problem that you had the tantrum over. So just skip
0: that part. You know, it's like, it's a waste of time, you know. And I guess some of that's inherited, you know, we talk a lot to younger cooks and it's like I think sometimes you see that and then you learn that and then you keep doing it. It's like the cycle. And I guess, you know, you didn't have this history of working for 10, 15 different chefs in your career before you went there. So, you know, I guess some of it's just going in with the the style you're comfortable with and and not inheriting that kind of behavior.
1: Yeah, no, that and I saw that behavior from time to time in other places and I did not approve of it. So, <laughs> It, it really rubbed me the wrong way. And, and a lot of it, you know, was was um, sort of ill aimed ambition. It didn't, like I say, it doesn't serve, it doesn't advance your menu that I can see, you know, it's just, I don't know. It's just, yeah, it just it rubbed me the wrong way. And I tried, I did, I went out of my way to not be that way actually. I, you know, And, and sometimes I had to give myself a talk, you know, I get to be in a bad mood or, you know, or tired or something, but no, no, no. You know, these people are, you, you need to respect the people who work for you, you know, and if you do that, then it'll work out, you know, of the time, I guess there's always the possibility of something, but, but basically, no, that's not just not how how I see things. So you retired in 2019. The very beginning of it. I I worked until the, the, the first week in January of that year, um, because we had a thing called the Crooks Corner book prize and that was given out in January. So I, I stuck around till the, till the party for that. And then I, I was, I was also turning 70 and I thought, you know, You've been there 25 years. You're turning 70. You need to get out of town because somebody's going to do something if you don't. So, uh, the next day, I was on a plane for Mexico. So, <laughs> that sounds like a good way to kick off retirement. It was great. <laughs> it's my go-to for many, for many things. But you know. so, what do you do
0: when you go down to Mexico?
1: Well, there's a bunch of guys that worked for me in the very beginning that had gone back home over the years, and also the families of people who worked for me still who are scattered all over the country. So. um, uh, there's one town I go to the most It's a town called Celaya in the state of Guanajuato, which is where the, the bulk of the Latino people in this area came from at first. So that's where I have the most friends. So I go there at some point. I love Mexico city. Uh, it's a fabulous city. I mean, it's the biggest city in the world and it's got everything. And I just, you can, I just can't get enough of it, you know? So I have a, there's a neighborhood I like in Mexico city and I have a hotel. I always stay at there and I, I go there both on my way in and out of the country. So I get myself a few days there at the beginning and a few days there when I'm coming back home and I do whatever down there. I, I love Teotihuacan, the, the ruins out in the, you know, out in the country and uh, I love all the museums, all the music and all of the food. And I love just walking around, you know, I just like every, the vibe it just really, I should have been born there. I, you know, it's like, and then I hop on a bus and I go to go see my friends and, Uh, that first year I went all over because I had friends in the South and in the North. So I I hopped on a bus and went down to Oaxaca, have a good friend who owns a hotel in Oaxaca city. Um, I stayed there for a while. Then I got back on the bus, went back through Mexico city, then went up to the North to, to, uh, where I have my most, most of my friends. And I don't know, I don't really do, I mean, I, we just drink beer and, you know, shoot the shit i don't know we just like i said they're my best friends i don't you don't have to do anything you know although their families are fun and um uh they they both scooped me up years ago and i don't know i was whole babies i don't know you know
0: <laughs> sounds like a good time to just hang out and eat some really good food right. and have some beers is
1: exactly I'm, i've never been happier as when i'm sitting there doing that you know, in the butcher shop in in salaya with my friend louise you know
0: <laughs> yeah i really miss travel right now i wish i could go somewhere like that i would be there
1: now actually i planned to spend most of this year down there uh i was going to go back in may and i have a, a nephew getting married and in, in this month and i was going to stay down there until that, that wedding and, and just hang, hang there and just, i just like to get on the bus and wander you know and, and i do that a lot and it's inexpensive I mean, it makes us really cheap you know and it's um you can you can uh, eat well and travel well and drink well and all that stuff with
0: what else have you gotten into since you've been retired? And do you have any big plans? Are there things you really want to accomplish or just kind of taking it as it goes? Well,
1: I, I was sort of in the middle of another cookbook uh, when I retired. And then I was so busy that year, I just never got around to finishing it. And now I'm trying to work on that again. Although the the, the tone of the world has changed, so I'm not sure how I, want it, how I want to focus it now. It was going to be like a retrospective in a way but i'm thinking now maybe something modest and comfortable might be better i don't don't know and and i've also been working on a a sort of a little memoir thing mainly about my friends in in mexico and and me and and all the you know our 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 experiences i think there's a need for um undemonizing these people if i can put it like that the crap that's been said about them in the last few years is really horrible and offensive and uh it really gets me going and and so I'm, i'm i'm that they've actually been my main, my main concern, you know, ever ever since the election because they were attacked. So, so uh, in such a way that it was (laughs) just drove me crazy. And so I've I've been running interference to them a lot, you know, with, with um, helping their kids, I don't know, whatever, raising money, having their kids out. Uh, And of course, now they're all out of work and most of them are are not entitled to any sort of of relief. And so a lot of those guys are in big trouble. So I've been uh, trying to help them out however I could and, that's taking really all of my attention and and uh, energy. If, if we ever get through all this, I intend to get back on the road, though. And, I, and there are a couple of big trips that um, that I'm interested in. I, I love the music of West Africa. And I've always, I'm, for many years I have, and I've never been there. I've had a few friends from, from Senegal and, and Ghana and stuff. But anyway, I'm going to West Africa as soon as I can. That's my next thing. I'm going to go to Senegal and Cape Verde and, and maybe Ghana. That's a pretty big trip. But uh, uh, I tried to go. That was the year I retired, I tried to go, and, and it <clears throat> turned out that there was a um, who knew a shortage of yellow fever vaccine, and there had been an outbreak of yellow fever in Dakar, and I wouldn't be allowed into the country without a vaccination. And I couldn't. There wasn't any of the of the of the accepted vaccine. but There was an experimental one, but it, um, you had to sign a waiver saying if it killed you that you wouldn't you couldn't sue them it costs like $800 and then it said, if you're over 60, it's not advised. So there was three reasons not to go to West Africa that year. And now, of course I wish I'd done it anyway, because <laughs> it's, it's going to be a lot. It's a, a, who knows when I'm going to get around to it. So, um, but that's what I want to do
0: next. And then I also want to go, I'm, I'm always going to Mexico. I mean, I, I'll go there in a heartbeat, I guess. So is Crook's Corner closed right now? Have they reopened or are they still closed?
1: No, they haven't. They, um, it's like everybody else it's like um all my chef friends and you know of course i have many have gone back and forth or places that were um sort of set up for takeout anyway or that did a lot of takeout have managed to transition but a lot of places that hadn't done me I mean, we had always done some takeout but that wasn't what we did you could just get what we had to go basically if you wanted to a lot of it really wasn't um a good food to, for takeout frankly i mean people always coming and getting fried oysters and those are horrible when you get them home you know and a Anyway, so we had we'd had takeout, but it wasn't wasn't the focus of what we did, and a lot of stuff didn't travel well, or, or you couldn't. How do you put it in a container, sort of thing? And you know, like, uh, there's lots of reasons. Uh, so um, they had didn't they didn't do um, anything because they. they um, I think they were, initially they were thinking this would be very brief, and they would just get in there and scrub the kitchen down and, and get going again. And now it's stretched out. How long is it? Nine months now, and it's. Um, uh, there, but the 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 business was sold the uh, the year I retired. I don't know if I told you this, the building had gone up for sale and um, two guys, one of which who had been a manager for years and uh, another guy who had um, owned a bar down the street, put together the money to buy the whole shebang because it was going to close, you know, and the town was having a fit. No, you can't close. You've been here forever. This, you know, somebody do something. And so that's what they did. So they were only in, they had only taken over just a year when everything, when the shit hit the fan sort of, and, and, um, but they had their other businesses, there was their first, you know, obligations because uh, Shannon Healy has a, a, a bar and restaurant in Durham, North Carolina. He was the guy that was the manager. Gary Conklin has the bar down the street and some other places around, I think maybe even Washington, they might, he might have one up there. Anyway, so their first obligation was to their initial businesses, right? So I think they're going to try to start doing takeout now, but um, the state's just, you just, um, Loosened up some of the regulations. North well, Carolina, we've we've done okay during the virus. Um, our governor was was um, really good about, and and, and the, the director of our state health department, she was really good. She was smart and clear and unexcitable and all this kind of things. And so people listened to her advice and did what she said. And so we we we've been doing okay. And so they they began to rel- to uh, lift some restrictions on on places being able to open and stuff like that. But it's that whole thing about if you're only half full, can you make can you do it? You know can okay, if you're only half full will take out make up the difference for the rest i think not honestly I, I don't some people are doing better than others like i said um every place i know is trying something different it seems like um so these guys were going to do they were talking about, i was in there not long ago i stuck my head i saw them there i stuck my head in the door and they were um they're thinking about doing uh just uh, brunches while the weather's warm because is a big patio and then uh some kind of takeout and just see how it goes from there and uh, but not being able to hire hardly anybody back and stuff which is really too bad
0: and um, uh, and I don't know if there's a date even right now and you've done some fundraising for some of the employees there is that right trying to help the guys who are out of work I, initially it started out I thought after the election that I would actually have to take everybody to the airport
1: and get you know get them out of here that was my thought so um, I started a goFundMe thing and so um, my publicist, my book agent, publicist. And I. she sat down, she said, well, I think if you, if everybody had to go to the airport on short notice without any any uh, advantage of, of advance purchase or anything, it would cost about $10,000 to put everybody on a plane and get them back home. I said, okay, we, that's what we're going to do. And so then I, mean, then I realized everybody needed their papers in order, their credentials, travel, everybody needed passports. So I kind of said, we got all that done. And then, but the people didn't want to go home. You know, they were, <clears throat> they'd been here for years and years. They had bought homes. Their children were born here. And they decided just to keep their heads down, you know? And so I thought, okay, fine, we'll, get, we'll go with that. And so just whatever. I mean, I've, I've done, people have been extremely generous. I'd like to say it first. People, especially people in the restaurant business, my colleagues around the country have been as generous as it's unbelievable. So um, I, I just got, I just sort of got everything ready to go in case whatever happened. We, we've, we've occasionally hired lawyers for people we've gone, DACA renewals. I've gotten passports for all the children. I got there. There, were, there was a, a couple other places around town where the the people who worked there were had relationships with my people and all that stuff. So we got their children passports. We got all that kind of stuff. So we just did whatever. And then and then what happened was this really horrifying thing where people began to take advantage of these folks because they knew they were afraid to complain. So I've had fights with landlords and I've had fights with. Insurance companies, and I've had fights with all this stuff, and all that's been expensive. So the money's just, who knows? You know, I'd, I'd say, I, I just finally told her, I said, listen, I don't know what I'm going to use the money for. I'll just let you know as I go. And so then when this happened, everybody got thrown out of work. I just said, okay, we're just going to start paying rent. So, <laughs> and it's been month by month, but I, I think, oh God, am I going to make it this month? And then all of a sudden, right at the end, there's a little burst of generosity, and we do. <laughs> so far, so good. But it's driving me crazy and wearing me out, frankly. And, and, and the toll it's taking on these children and stuff is, unpardonable. It's unpardonable because they see their, their parents uh, exhibiting all this stress and, and and, and in fact, their dreams have been disrupted, you know, and and that's, and that's, that's a hard thing to watch, you know, and, uh, you know, I just want it all to be over with.
0: Yeah, I know there's not much of end in sight, you know, we're, we're seeing it all over and I don't, I don't know. It seems like this thing's going to keep stretching on and every day you see more places closing up and people out of work and I don't know what we're going to be doing. I don't either. And you, and and when these people are concerned, there's so much racist crap that's been
1: unleashed and these people are the victims of it because they're not white and that's even worse, you know? And uh, so, you know, it's just, it's endless. It's driving me crazy.
0: Yeah. And I guess most of them aren't eligible for any kind of unemployment, most families have mixed documentation. You know, there be some
1: people who are, who are, are legal and others who are not because they wanted to be together and that's all there is to it. And, and, and the, the law is such that e that you jeopardize the people who are eligible. Um, if somebody who's not eligible, you know, it takes, it gets some advantage from any of these things. So the people that are eligible often don't even look for it because they're, they're afraid of, you know, the consequences. So. So anyway, it's been up to us. And, and so far, so good. We've done it. But it's like I said, I've about had it.
0: <laughs> and I know you've been an activist over the years for a number of different things. Is that something that came naturally to you? It just seems like you have these causes and maybe "activist" isn't a term you even like to identify with. But, you know, it's very easy to just sit back and do nothing. But that doesn't seem to be how you've kind of lived your life. It does not seem to be. And I, I do. I wonder why I'm such a troublemaker. And I have been that way. Um, it runs
1: in my family. And actually I'm working on this piece now for the Journal, uh, journal of Southern Cultures. I had a, my great grandmother's grandmother was an abolitionist. <laughs> and uh, it depends on who, t- who told you the story, but apparently in uh, like uh, 1858 or something, she led a procession through the streets of Philadelphia riding a white stallion that had been drenched in blood to protest bleeding Kansas. So I blame all this on her. <laughs> I'm trying to do some research now. It's hard to find out. And everybody that, that used to tell the story, they're all, you know, long gone now. So um, it, it I don't know, it runs, it, it, it is, it's in me. And I don't, my mother was like this, although she wasn't, she was sort of a conservative. She wasn't as liberal as I am at all by any stretch of the imagination. But I do feel the obligation, and I'm not sure why, to stand up for things that I, th- or ob- objective things that I think are wrong. And it could be, it's been all over the place. And I I sound like some sort of, I don't know what, but uh, I don't know. It's just my conscience
0: insists that I do these things. so. So what are your thoughts on the food industry in general? I mean, I know you've seen a lot. What are we going in the right direction? You know, I talk to people all the time, kind of about kitchen culture and what needs to change. And I think we're making some strides in the right direction, but there's a long ways to go. Any thoughts on that from, from what you see?
1: Yeah, uh, and and, it, and I've seen it. It's for people, my colleagues who are much younger than I, and I, I started noticing it a few years ago. There, where they were a little more ethical in the way they ran their businesses and the way they chose to do things, and and, and I mean that in many ways, they would try to source locally because they kept money in their communities. They would try to uh, use things that were healthy as opposed to not, unless you know, they're I don't know. You sometimes you just have to have cheese wheels, but you know what I mean. You know, they would they would they would try to make good decisions in, in, in how and in what they made. They uh, treated their employees with respect. Um, and uh, I noticed it in my younger colleagues years ago, and there's more of that now. There's a real um, there, there's a whole bunch of people are, around this area, the triangle, that are uh, 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 restaurant owners and, p- and business owners and stuff like that, that make that part. In other words, I think what you have to do is you have to, and I'm, I think this is a good thing, the... Celebrity has to go, <laughs> and just look after your people, you know. And if you do that, then you may attain celebrity. But there was a while there when this business was driven entirely by the celebrity. You know what I mean? It's like uh I think it maybe started it started out sort of um, without people really realizing it at first, and then and then it, and then it began to snowball. It became irresistible. I was I was also guilty of it, you know. Uh, but that—that's um, not how to do things. That's not how to do things. You, you put your nose to the grindstone. You try to do a good job, and serve your community, and make a decent living, and treat everybody well. And there's a lot of that now. And and and, and I see it among my, like, say, my younger colleagues around me. And I, if they can survive this, um, then I would think we'll see more of it. But everybody's under that economic stresses now. That, that uh, sometimes you have to make choices that are not in the, you know, in the best interest of everybody. And and I guess that was something a lesson that needed to be learned too. So, um, that's, that's, that's what I'm hoping to see. I'm a lot less people prancing around in, in toques and more chefs helping the guys take the, the trash out at the end of the night. You
0: know what I mean? I was just talking to some people. I don't even really feel comfortable wearing a chef's coat anymore. I don't, I don't know why, like, it just feels like it never fit me. Like that was never my thing, but I had to wear one. I, I wore rock and roll t-shirts. I was known for it. Usually
1: greasy ones, you know, and a, and a dirty apron, you know, <laughs> Do you have favorite rock and roll T-shirts? I do. I had a huge collection, actually. I, I because I own the Cat's Cradle and still go there all the time. I, mean, I can't go now, but I had um, um, over three hundred band shirts, which which the uh, southern uh, the Southern Folklife Collection at UNC has taken into their to their archives. <laughs> I don't know what would be my favorite. Um, I, I, there are many. I don't know. There's so many bands I love. We have a lot of good bands that come from here, you know. So that 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 people elsewhere may not have heard of.
0: Yeah, I'm a big collector of those, too. My favorite is a Ben Folds 5 shirt. He used to around the corner for me. I have my uh, original shirt from, like, 1995, and it's one of those shirts I only break out every now and then because I want to kind of keep it intact. But that's probably my favorite rock shirt, so I have quite a collection myself. Although I don't quite fit in them. I've grown a little more in, in 20 years. I've got a a
1: scruffy, the cat t-shirt.
0: There was a band from Boston. that used to play here a lot and it's just like a Kleenex now. It's been, you know, so it's the same thing. I don't almost never wear it. So, (laughs) Knowing everything you do, uh, that you've picked up in the food industry, would you get back into it if you were 20 years old today? And you know, we didn't have COVID if, if the world were a normal place, would you get into the culinary industry?
1: Yeah, I probably would, I guess. I don't know. Like I said, I'm glad I, I really love not being in charge of anything right now, but, um, if I were, yeah, if I were even 20 years younger, I probably would, would do it, you know. I would, um, more on my own terms, I guess, um, to start with. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, uh, it really did suit me in many ways. But you have to, like I say, you have to be really, re- ready to just work your butt off. I mean, people think it's like giving a dinner party every night, but honestly, it's like working in a coal mine. You know, it's like, you know, it's really hard work, you know, and, and, um, and, and I warn people too. I mean, uh, there was about a, about ten years ago, half of my friends had midlife crises, right? And so they they all decided they wanted to go in the restaurant business. And I said, no, you are too old. You know what? <laughs> you,
0: you don't even know. You know? Well, even the personal chef business, because that's what I'm doing now, and people think that that's easier, and it's not. It's different. It's easier in some respects, but it's like if you've never worked in food service. So I'm seeing all these people who are like accountants, and it. 45 want to be a personal chef it's like well wow like do you realize what it's going to be like uh it's not just like throwing a dinner party at your house there's a lot that goes into it sure well you have you know there's
1: lots and lots of that. well for one thing what if you get somebody that's, that's impossibly picky to work for that's for, <laughs> for starts and then <laughs> yeah and then you, i don't know you have um, the health concerns to consider and you have uh people's all, all these allergy things people seem to have these days and all this kind of stuff. no 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 i yeah i, I have i've
0: several friends who do that too different problems, but it's, it's definitely rewarding. I mean, I'm enjoying it more than working in a restaurant. I've done a few things like that, but only for
1: friends or, or uh, occasionally for fundraising events that friends do for small dinner parties and stuff. And I I usually take one of the guys that work for me and, you know, and the same thing, but, but uh, I also have friends who do the same people every week. They're they're like hired by these families coming three days a week because the, the, the parents are busy and they have a lot of, you know, they have children and all this kind of stuff. So, so I've done, I've done the little, but you know, sometimes people's kitchens are not, <laughs> they're, they're little and they're, <laughs> I had to, I did this huge dinner party that was one uh, huge. It was, well, it was 25. It was the 50th wedding anniversary for people I've known forever. And it was really fun to do, but my God, it was like, <laughs> it was like doing it out of the trunk of my car. You yeah. Know I did <laughs> one just this
0: past weekend where there was no formal dining room. It was an Eden kitchen at an Island. So the Island was my work table and where they're going to be eating. So I had it while they were in the other room having cocktails and stuff. But when they came in to eat, my butt was literally two feet from like the thing. So I'm working at the stove and like, you know, I could butt bump with the with the guests there. And then in, and in the time of social distancing, you know, I really wanted a little more room. Most of my guests have been able to eat outside or in another room, but now I'm in this tiny kitchen with like eight ladies who are a foot from me. And it was a little Closer than I wanted it to be, but I had no idea going into it. What are some of your favorite culinary resources? Like if someone wanted to, you know, just even recreationally cooking, what are some of your favorite cookbooks, websites, magazines, things just for cooking in general?
1: Funny, you should mention that. One of the things I've been doing while I've sort of been quarantined is I've been going, trying to organize my mess because I've I've lived in this house since 1984, and although I was never here because I was always at work, it's full of crap. And one of the things I have is ten thousand cookbooks, and so I've been organizing mine, and uh, so I've I've organized them. uh, I'm looking at them over here now. I've organized them in in a sort of a logical way to me. The first, my first clump of them is um, so the favorite classics that I had when I started at La Residence when we started when we were all at La Residence everybody was even Bill and, and Morton were they knew the the food of France but they had never trained it and so we were, we worked our way through Julia Child you know so Julia Child Simca um, uh, Marcella Hassan that 50th anniversary Joy of Cooking Paula Wolfert another one um, people like that so I've got a clump of those and then I have everybody I know has written a cookbook, you know, and so I have all my f- friends' favorites. Um, next, I couldn't really even pick one out. I, I, I don't know if this. I like something about almost all of them, uh, maybe because I'm fond of the people who wrote them or whatever. But and I learned from my my Latino friends. My friend Rosie, she's married to one of the guys that worked for me forever, and. Um, she showed me how to make tamales and stuff like that. So we did some classes together and that was fun. A lot of times these days, it's just me. I, you know, so I, um, it's interesting. In and cooking for one person is really really sort of tedious to me at this point. So I, what I do is I go, we have a pretty good farmer's market, you know, several times a week. So I go there and I just see what's there. And then that, that sort of informs what I'm going to have next. There's a little butcher shop down the street, same thing. There's a fish market down the street, same thing. So I don't really uh, plan what I'm going to cook and stuff like that. Um, I just sort of see what's around, you know. I guess it, it's my both my seasonal upbringing and then the way we ran Crooks as well. One thing I've been doing, I, I, I've been making. Um, I don't know why I started doing this. Even it's sort of I, I'm, so I've been making these uh, baking videos on Facebook, and um, I say I don't know why I started doing it, but I, I have a constituency now, and, I, and so what I do is I, I make something usually I, uh, lately it's been cakes it's not always been cakes but and usually it's from somebody's cookbook that's a friend of mine or that I have some association with and then uh because I'm doing it on my phone and on Facebook it's they're, they're like in little five minute chunks and maybe four you know and i so I don't really edit very well and then um at the end uh, of the, of the each thing I give a little rant about politics so <laughs> Anyway, I, I had just just thought, well, this is really stupid. Why are you doing this? And so I, I sort of announced I wasn't going to do it anymore. That was dumb. And I had this huge outcry. Don't you dare stop! Are you crazy! You know. So I'm still doing that. I'm going to do one today, actually. So, so that's been that's been sort of a strange. I don't know. I don't know why I started. I don't know what in the world possessed me to do the first one? And I think the first one might have been uh, what did I do first? I think actually I did gumbo's Arab because it was Mardi Gras. That's probably it. I love Mardi Gras so. I think that was, and that's not a cake, of course, but uh, that's what started me doing these these videos, and, and I, I was sort of seduced by the, the uh, accolade that they <laughs> they produce. So now, and now I can't stop. So today I'm doing a persimmon pound cake. So it's, it's persimmons these in here; they're they're everywhere. They're they're like weeds, you know. They
0: I haven't had any persimmons this season yet, and uh, I think I need to go find some before the season's gone. So have you have you lived anywhere else in the U.S. or have you always been a North Carolina guy? I was born in Eastern North Carolina and I lived there until I was 18. Then I came to Chapel Hill, which is also in North Carolina,
1: to go to school. And I was a horrible student. But I was a very good hippie. So I wandered around a lot. Um, but I mainly, I mainly always had an address here. Uh, there was a while I worked for a theater company. I was in New York. I was a chorus boy, believe it or not, for a couple of years. And I lived in New York in, in Manhattan for you know, a year and a half or so. And, and there was on the road was, with the theater company. Uh, but yeah, basically, I've lived here in Chapel Hill. I've lived here for, I've lived in this house since 1984, and uh, I came here in 1967, so I've lived here longer than anywhere,
0: but I'm from down east. You know, my great-grandmother was from Cape Hatteras, so. So what's the key to staying young? It seems like you're very young at heart and very active. Any secrets?
1: Well, I actually, I've talked to my doctor a little bit about this, but um, I don't have a car. I haven't had a car in about, since 1973, and I've ridden a bicycle every day for like 50 years or <laughs> whatever. So that you know, it, 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 takes its toll on one's knees, but, um, no, I think I'm in pretty good health. I mean, I'm quite lucky actually. I think you know, I don't have anything really
0: wrong with me. That's fantastic. I've been walking five miles a day. I started back in July and, uh, and then this morning I switched up to bike riding cause I want to go get some food, but I think more people need to be walking and, and biking.
1: I enjoy it. You know, and, and, um, um, I do everything on the bicycle. I do all my shopping and all this kind of stuff. And, and, um, People are saying, oh, "I'll give you a ride." I go, "No, no, really." I, even when the weather's really crummy. I mean, if it's a sleet storm, of course. I don't, but, uh, but no, I, I really like it. I don't mind getting rained on, and I, I enjoy. I don't know. I just, I really enjoy. I, I look, I look forward to it sometimes. Good. I'm glad every, every. So, and this is a good town for bicycling. You know, everybody bikes, and there are bike lanes, and you know, and the, the traffic is used to seeing bicyclists and, and things like that. So, you know, another place might not be so pleasant, but this, this is here. So,
0: anything else you want to go over before we get out of here today? No, I I just, I've enjoyed talking with you. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. And to all our listeners, this has been the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. As always, you can find us at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org and on all social media. Thanks so much and have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.